Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Uh, Mike, for us, National Bank Open in the rearview mirror. And now looking back on an incredible tournament in Cincinnati and suddenly U.S. Open is right around the corner as well. Yeah, I'm getting excited for this next next stretch of episodes, uh, although it is different not being in the studio with you face-to-face as we kind of got into that groove in Toronto, so we're back on the Zoom calls. Um, we do have an interview from that week in Toronto, and it's a, an interesting one in that it kind of brings hockey and tennis together, which are my two favorite sports, so I always enjoy those kind of crossovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got a veteran Canadian hockey broadcaster, Ron McLean, who if you're a hockey fan and you're Canadian, you definitely are familiar with him and his voice, and so... He was refereeing the ball hockey challenge between ATP stars and NHL stars in Toronto, and I caught up with him. So we'll get to that later in the episode, but we got to get started with Cincinnati and all the incredible action there between Coco Goff and Novak Djokovic. What an incredible event to really get us ready for the U.S. Open and uh, I think peak everyone's curiosity and excitement level in terms of what both of these players are ready to bring to the table here. Yeah, simply uh, some unbelievable performances, and I I think because it's the most fresh in our minds will start on the men's side and the final that was produced between Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz. And maybe there was a fear with the the big three suddenly, you know, coming apart in the sense that Federer has retired, Nadal is injured, and we, we hope, fingers crossed, he's back and healthy in 2024. Could we see another kind of existing rivalry that would give us the same level of excitement and drama and intrigue as we saw when those three would clash with one another. And Alcaraz versus Djokovic just feels like the most electric match we we have on the men's tour. And they produced an absolute epic in this final. Djokovic surviving Carlos Alcaraz in three sets in three hours, 49 minutes, ripped his shirt off at the end of this, which is the second time I've seen him do that. The other time he did that was 2012 Australian Open after beating Rafa in five hours, 55 minutes uh, for him to come through Carlos, avenge the loss at Wimbledon and call it one of the toughest matches of his career. And you think of the number of matches he has played. I mean, that's quite a statement. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if players suffer from recency bias, just like members of the Possibly. media, but but it was one of the greats. I got to I got to tell you, it far surpassed what the first set sort of set it up to be. I mean, Djokovic took an early break in the first. Alcaraz got it back later in the set, but then Djokovic was fading. I mean, he was really struggling and suffering in the heat. He really reminded me of how he looked earlier in his career in some big time matches when he would sort of cramp up or when he was having difficulties breathing and handling those kind of conditions. And so the Cincinnati weather was just absolutely zapping him of his strength. And it looked like it was going to be more of a routine straight set win for Alcaraz. And then, you know, Djokovic took a, a timeout and had the trainer and medical staff come out and look at him, you know, some uh, some extra juice or things to get his electrolytes up, his energy levels up. And as the sun started going down in Cincinnati, his strength returned and what a match it became. And it showed us what this rivalry can be. And I feel like it's very rare to have someone of Djokovic's age and status, you know, a legend of the sport, 36 years old, able to hang with a 20 year old and produce these incredible matchups where they almost look in the third set, like both were at their absolute peaks. And so, you know, this is a rivalry that's, that's gripping tennis. It's, it's got my attention. Absolutely. 
And it's one that we wanted to see earlier in 2023, but it didn't happen. Yep. They either weren't playing the same events. Djokovic couldn't play a couple still. Uh, they were trading back that world number one ranking, even though they weren't facing each other. And you thought, gosh, if we could just get these guys to meet up in the later stages of big time matches. Well, we've had it three times now in the French Open semis, Wimbledon finals, and now the finals of Cincinnati. And my goodness, it has not disappointed. Yeah, and uh, look, now two and two in their head-to-head, four total matches. Of course, Alcaraz beat him in Madrid last year. And and each time, uh, I mean, they really bring out the best in one another. Uh, Novak made the comp uh, comparable of what it felt like facing Rafael Nadal at the peak of their careers when they were younger. And, and you can just feel it and sense it. Every single ball, every point, it feels like there's so much at stake. These lengthy deuce games so much pressure on both sides. You know, they both flinched in key moments and, and the other player fought back. Alcaraz was up 4-3 in the second set, played a bit of a tight game and Djokovic dug in and, and gets himself back in the match. I mean, the third set, Djokovic in control, he's up 5-3. Alcaraz has to save a miraculous match point on his serve, sprinting side to side, tracks down a, a short low volley from Djokovic, passes him up the line. I mean, that was... What a shot. What an Electrifying. Shot. <laughs> it's just incredible. Uh, Djokovic was talking about that in, in the press conference. He was just like, well, what can I say? Like, I pulled him side to side, and it was just amazing what he did. Uh, so, yeah, I, was, I think it for... was on those points, on those points that Alcaraz produced, you know, and the two of them produced some of the best points of the match on those four championship points that Novak didn't capitalize on. Yeah. And just, you know, the fact that Alcaraz was able to tie it up and send it to that third third set tie break, just incredible, incredible stuff. I mean, you know, we talked about this at the National Bank Open where we had two surprise finalists, sort of. I mean, Yannick Sinner, maybe not as much, but Alex Duminar, for sure, not someone you maybe expected to be there. And, you know, they both deserved it. They both played fantastic tournaments. But at the start of an event, Fans want to see the top players there in the final standing on the final day. It's not often you get number one and number two who, who managed to make it there. But when you do, and then to get them to produce a match like that, I mean, nearly four hours in a three-set match is is craziness. Fans got their, their money's worth and then some. And, and even after the match, the, the post-match, you know, exchange between the two of them also surpassed what you normally get in a cliched championship speech when Novak was saying to him boy you never give up man like Jesus I love that about you yeah and sometimes I wish maybe you'd sort of you know not play these crazy points and Alcaraz <laughs> leans in and says like the Spanish never die and then Djokovic is like <laughs> oh yeah I've experienced this before you know alluding to his great matches with Nadal I mean even yeah. the championship press you know her um, conference or, or, or interview on on court was an epic one after all that time Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it had everything. And, you know, seeing Alcaraz actually get emotional in uh, in that trophy ceremony, um, he almost too. started started crying and it, it almost felt like it wasn't tears of like, I'm so sad that I lost. It was almost like a release of emotions of what they had both left out there on the court. Um, and he said afterwards, it's like, I, I don't really know why I cried. It was just like a sudden sort of reaction and, uh, you know, tears, laughter exchanged between the two in the trophy ceremony. Just what a fight, what a battle. Um, you can sense the incredible mutual respect the two have from one another, which of course we yes. love. And and that was uh, that was the case as well. I think when Djokovic and Nadal would engage in those incredible battles, and you know they've had about sixty of them, which is remarkable. For we Alcaraz, won't get that, we won't get that number between Alcaraz and Djokovic. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> Father Time won't allow that unless Novak plays till he's fifty-five. But right. Um, 
for right now, it's just terrific. And with the U.S. Open set to begin in, in about a week's time, I mean, this is, you know, it, it seems right now these two, it would be hard hard to imagine them not making it to the finals to play each other yet again this year. And with only 20 points now separating them with Alcaraz having the slimmest of leads for that number one ranking. Um, yeah. Who else, you know, I mean, we'll talk about this next week some more, but it's hard to imagine anyone else in the finals but these two. Yeah, well, look, the, I think that was also a, a bit of a takeaway for for many watching this match and how high uh, the quality of tennis was is you, you feel like there is a pretty sizable gap right now between Alcaraz Djokovic, who are right on top of the mantle. They traded the slams this year and they're producing these epic matches and, and then the rest of the tour. And that's not a slight to the rest of the tour, honestly. That's just the, the reality of... Um, one legend of the game who we know is, you know, arguably certainly one of the, if not the greatest of all time. And Alcaraz, who at age 20 look like looks like he's completely a generational player and going to be one of the greatest of all time. So the rest of the tour is really going to have their work cut out for them. I, I think, you know, again, we'll talk about this at the US Open, but Yannick Sinner, I think, showed a lot in Toronto. Like, he's kind of entering that conversation as one of the names who could do it. And we know Daniil Medvedev has won the US Open before. So I, I think there are other guys who are possibly on that contender list, but one and two are very clearly these two. And you can pick whatever order you like, I would say. Yeah, and if you look through the rest of the top 10, I mean, talk about some names that have really struggled on the back-to-back hardcourt Masters 1000 events between Medvedev, Pass, Runa, Kasper Ruud, and Andre Rublev. Combined, those players only have five victories in these two big hardcourt lead-up events to the U.S. Open. So not exactly inspiring with confidence in terms of their chances to, I mean, forget winning the event, but even going deep in the event the way they've played lately. So, you know, Djokovic and Alcaraz, to me, are, um, you know, they've understandably and justifiably earned this um you know momentum and 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 status and uh i mean that's who you want to see standing just like you wanted to see sampras versus agassi back in the in the 90s when they were the two two big names and uh it's a great you know passing of the torch between these two and it hasn't been passed yet even right like Djokovic is still firmly wanting to hold on to it but they're trading back and forth and and i think it's nice because when Djokovic does ultimately leave the sport he's leaving it in great hands it's it's like the transition is happening right before our eyes and um and you'll love to see that the sport is going to be um you know taken care of yeah that's that's well said and uh look with some of these results like quite a lot of sort of jostling at the top 10 of the rankings like Holger Runa he goes 0-2 in the uh you know Toronto Cincinnati double and because of points not defended by other players he's up to a career high number four just for the sake of other players results and suddenly he's getting the four seed going to the u.s open stefano Tsitsipas, you know he played great in los cabos you thought maybe he'd build off that momentum and he's suddenly in a bit of a rut which is surprising to me like he's dropping back to seventh in the rankings casper rude was u.s open finalist last year and not really building any form on the North American hardcourt swing. So I have some concerns there. And Andre Rublev, he's been to all these slam quarterfinals. You'd like his chances on any hardcourt tournament. He's struggling. So it's it's hard to make sense of some of the inconsistency amongst the top 10 and then the domination from the top two. 
Yeah, and if you're a Canadian tennis fan, you know, also struggling is Felix Ogialiassime. Yes. He finally got back in the win column by beating a very tough Matteo Berrettini in the opening round in Cincinnati, but couldn't follow that up and lost to Adrian Manorino, you know, oddly enough, his doubles partner in Cincinnati, you know, 6-4, 6-4 in the next round. Um, but maybe it makes Canadian tennis fans feel a little bit better when you see, hey, there's tons of players who are also in that top 10 or just outside of the top 10 range, also struggling to find their form right now. And for Felix, maybe, you know, going back to the site of his best ever Grand Slam result, making the semis of the U.S. Open in 2021, maybe that's a place where he can capitalize and, and take advantage, uh, you know, among that group of talented players that just haven't really found their, their form uh, quite yet. But, um, you know, right now, let's uh, let's move on to uh, our interview with uh, Canadian hockey broadcaster Ron McLean. And for those who are tennis fans and maybe not familiar with Ron, he's been the voice of hockey since I was a kid. I mean, he's that respected presence and and voice that's guided us through the uh the ups and downs of the sport over the past 40 30 40 years really honestly and to make a, a tennis comparison he kind of reminds me a bit of like what dick enberg was um you know uh, back in the day he was that voice that you heard at wimbledon and the slams that sort of set the scene and 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 painted everything for for the listeners and viewers at the start of a tournament each day and so ron mcclain to me is kind of in that same vein of uh of uh respected broadcasters Really cool for me to get to catch up with him as a hockey fan also. And uh, he really surprised me. You never know sometimes what you're going to get when you speak to someone who covers another sport, what their knowledge will be of tennis. But uh, Ron, definitely also an avid tennis fan, speaking of the new generation of players, and shares who his favorite member of the Big Three is as well. So I'll let our listeners uh, have a peek at that. Here's my interview with Ron McLean. Joined right now by a very familiar voice, not in tennis, but in hockey, Ron McLean, who's here enjoying the proceedings between the ATP and, uh, and uh, NHL stars. How did those tennis guys handle themselves out here with the hockey sticks? Well, absolutely great. Uh, Hari Haliavoro. How do you say it? That's a, that's a mouthful, eh? Yeah, Haliavoro, whatever, the Finnish guy. He was, he was high school. He, re, he was very impressive to me. Uh, I thought, obviously, Alexi knows what he's doing, a Canadian, so I got him to take the opening face off. But all, all of them acquitted themselves with what you'd expect, great eye hand, right? You saw, I was a little worried because I was allowing high sticks. You saw that, yeah. Yeah, and the ball was in the air, and that's a little bit tricky with eyes, uh, not wearing visors, but the guys were and uh, the women were great, so they, they put on a heck of a show. Always happy to see it when the, the ATP guys and, and the tennis players make it out unscathed from one of these before the tournament happens. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was worried. Achilles, right? That's the biggest thing that you see popped in. Well, that's what kept Milos out for, for two years, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you always want to make sure they get that warmed up. And they did. Tell me, if things were flipped the other way around and we had the hockey players, the NHL guys playing oh, tennis with these guys, how would that have? Because the, the tennis the guys names, held their own, I think. But I was talking to Gretzky yesterday, and, and Wayne, of course, loved tennis and would host an event in Brentford. So I, I would say, you know, that way back in 1949, the number one hockey player and the number one tennis player in the Czech Republic was the same guy. No way. Yeah, a guy named Brodny. And, uh, but there's not too many that, you know, Yvonne Lendl, I remember, came from tennis and into hockey with the Hartford Whalers organization. But these guys all have that, you know, those magic hands. Kadri showed it. Quinton Byfield showed it here today. Dougie Gilmore even on that even first that uh, shootout. Even goal in the shootout, right? It's just like... A laser uh, with with a little turn of the wrist. So it's funny because you see the what's happening in tennis with Alcaraz and uh, Runa and some of these guys. Uh, their drop shot game, their deception game. It's the same as hockey. They've got, the got all the tools. The, yeah, the Michigan we call it in hockey, but they're all doing it in tennis now. 
you're a, I, I take it just from the terms you're using and familiarity with some of the new names coming along, tennis fan yourself then? I love it. I always grew up uh, idolizing. It's funny because I be, did become a referee, but I loved McEnroe, and he was not, as you know, kind to referees, the chair umpires. <laughs> Probably worst nightmare, but uh, I loved the game. Those were the years of Borg and Connors, and then Becker, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, just loved the game and didn't play a ton of it. I was more a golfer in the off season, right. but loved to watch and certainly watched Wimbledon like a hawk this year. And just that, you know, at one point in the fifth set when Alcaraz got 14 winners to Djokovic's none, and I thought, oh, there's the future. You know, right, that's, a, right that's, there. that's a new uh, spin. Uh, this game is going. Do you have a favorite amongst the big three, Federer and Nadal Djokovic? Which camp do you fall under? Uh, I do like Djokovic, which is a weird thing to say. You know, maybe uh, like Daniel Nestor I saw here today has Serbian roots. Um, but I, I've always liked Djokovic more than I, you know, he's, he, I don't think he's the flavor of the day. I think Roger is obviously king and uh, Rafa is uh, lefty and fun and, uh, you know, got that. They're all special. But yeah, I, I think Djokovic is, uh, like even in that match against Alcaraz when he was trying to hold on, uh, I love that he adjusted and tried to just make it go longer and longer and hope that he could flip the pressure somehow. Never did. But uh, he's, he's been a great champion. Of those three, he's my guy. Yeah, we've been blessed to have him. And I'm glad you said that, actually, because I don't think Djokovic gets his, his fair due compared to those two guys either. So. Yeah, I think he's great. And like you saw, the interview was gracious after he lost. Always. Uh, explaining how fast uh, Carlos had adjusted to grass. He's been a fan uh, all his life of Wimbledon. As you know, he had a little trophy when he was a boy, Djokovic. Uh, but I always loved that he said when you go to Wimbledon, it's uh, you know, not music and lights. It's authentic. Uh, everything's about the game. So for that reason, I, I kind of gravitate to him. Well, thanks, Ron, so much yeah. for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And we look forward to hearing your voice back on the air with the hockey next year. Yeah, thank you as well. And there is broadcaster Ron McLean speaking with Mike. I have to say he surprised me choosing Novak Djokovic as his favorite member of the big three, just because it, it doesn't feel like the normal uh, pick that I hear from most people when I ask, especially people who are maybe of a, a previous generation than me. I, I find Roger Federer is often the common choice. Uh, but look, he explained that well. Also, he you know, let me in on a tidbit about Yvonne Lendl. I did not know Lendl had a background playing hockey. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was actually playing hockey. I thought he maybe had like an ownership stake or something like okay. that with the with the Hartford franchise. Um, I meant to look into that also, and and I didn't. And uh, it's funny at the start of the conversation, Ron was uh, trying to find the name of a Finnish doubles player, and, and uh, I I thought he was talking about Rusevori, the the singles player, and mm. uh, so wasn't quite sure, but. Uh, we got on track after that, and um, you know it was funny watching him referee the game because it wasn't like a super competitive game. You don't want to get an ATP player injured in this ball hockey challenge ahead of the National Bank Open, but uh, he wasn't calling any high sticks. You know, and some players were reaching up, particularly the tennis players, to bat the ball out of the air, and he's like, "Oh dear God!" He told me after, like, I just didn't want anyone to get injured ahead of the <laughs> tournament and have it on on my watch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's that's really understandable. Um, there were, there cool. was a game a couple years ago, a few years ago, where Novak Djokovic actually played in the ball hockey challenge. Oh yeah, uh, I think it was the year he beat Nishikori in the finals. I want to say 2018, and uh, there was a media member. I won't uh, share her name, but uh, she was out there going like hardcore on the uh, on the hockey court and nice. uh, going into the corners, getting the elbows up. I'm like, oh my god, this this reporter is going to like take. Novak Djokovic out of the tournament <laughs> before it even begins. So I always feel like it's uh, it's a bit of a risk for them to to do, but the fans love it. And obviously, here in Canada, with many hockey fans, 
they like to see that sort of crossover appeal of of having a hockey game at a tennis tournament definitely and and just a, a side note quickly like i i know um from a tournament i've i've played in a toronto neighborhood max domi he likes to play tennis in the off season um you know big Toronto Blue Jays fans will know Bo Bichette is an avid tennis player and uh, loves loves to get out and play when he has a chance. And I, I believe he was spotted at the National Bank Open in Toronto taking in some of the action as well. So there is some crossover appeal among sports and definitely for hockey players. Uh, plenty of them are big fans of tennis. If we continue on with the women's side, I, I mean, we teased it at the front end. Coco Goff uh, breaking through here in Cincinnati biggest title of her career and for me uh biggest single victory of her career uh finally defeating world number one Iga Svantec in a thrilling three set semifinal before taking down Carolina Muhova the French Open finalist from earlier this year for the victory i mean what a fantastic run she's on just through this north american hardcourt swing yeah what a crazy streak that that coco's on and realizing and and capitalizing on that talent and Still only 19 years old. I mean, if you asked me to guess how old she was before I looked that up, I would have said, you know, she must be 21 or 22 by now because it feels like she's been around longer. But my goodness, she's still a teenager. And, uh, you know, it was 2019 when she beat Venus Williams there in that Wimbledon opening round match and made it to the fourth round. And, uh, you know, she's only 15 years old. I mean, it's just craziness mm-hmm. to think about that. Yeah. You don't see that as much anymore. You know, this used to be more the norm back in the, I want to say early 2000s, late 90s, when you had Serena, Venus, Martina Hingis, Anna Kournikova, who had her you know, brief moment near the top, Capriati years before that. Like it was more the norm to see, especially on the women's side, young talents who would who would come along. And we don't see that as much uh, nowadays. Although I am very interested to see what Mira Andriva can can produce and do, and she's got us excited from you know the French Open and Wimbledon and beyond. Um, but for Coco really consolidating that talent and, and coming into her own right now and back to back big titles, you know, the 500 level in DC now a thousand level one here in Cincinnati and this partnership with Brad Gilbert, who has been, you know, added to her team. So not replacing anybody, but what a great move that, that clearly is turning out to be in terms of what he's also brought to her game in just these two tournaments that they've worked together. And it really shows that sometimes yeah, just a little adjustment, just maybe one extra voice that you you bring along to an already strong group of people, and look at the difference that's having for her. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, since he was added to that team, eleven and one through twelve matches, and so many big victories in there. And uh, Jessica Pagula, the winner in Montreal, defeating her in a very tight three sets. We know they're they're great friends. Actually, Chris Clary, who runs the Substack and a you know a friend of the podcast, he's been a guest many times. Uh, he interviewed Gilbert a couple weeks ago and got this great quote that I thought was interesting uh, about, about Gilbert saying he was so convinced Goff does have big titles in her. Brad said. I like what she has. They talk about what is missing in her game because everybody is fixated on that. I'm like, man, a lot of people are missing what she has. It's more important to focus on your strengths and keep improving your strengths. I thought that's such a smart perspective because we we have heard, especially over the last year, I think the dialogue around Coco Goff is her forehand is an issue. Uh, You know, she has to change her technique on that side, it's wonky, it's unreliable, it's going to keep her from beating good players. 
Um, and you sort of lose sight of the fact of how many weapons she does have in her game that's allowed her to get to this spot. And, you know, she's still a teenager. I, I just always view like she has so much room to grow and improve. And she's already this remarkable athlete uh, that I'm really not surprised she's able to do this. Look how many players can you find that don't have a weakness or part of their game that needs to be better. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I think back to when I was a kid, like Stefan Edberg's forehand. Oh, my goodness. How did he get by with that? Well, look at his volleying, his foot speed, his backhand, right? Mm -hmm. Court coverage. Um, you know, so for Coco Goff, yeah, look at the positives. Look at all the things that she does bring to the table. And and look at how much time she still has ahead of her to, to fix those little things that, that could be better. So, uh, you know, really exciting to see. And, and that win over Iga also, just in terms of, destabilizing the upper levels of the WTA and, and making it a little bit more interesting too because the first half of the season everyone was talking about oh there's a big three on the women's side of Sviantec, yep. Rybakina and Sabalenka well it's obviously turned out to be deeper than that and there's other names that want to be in contention too so I think it really opens it up ahead of the US Open and I'm not one to look at the odds makers but this must have really you know evened out to some extent you know the the players at the top to be considered favorites on the women's side of Flushing Meadows this year. Yeah, definitely. And I now look at, you really look at the top 10 of the WTA and it feels very strong, especially like within, you know, the top six, the fact that you have Iga, Arena, Jessica Bagula, who just got that title in Montreal and Rabakina right there, who's a slam champion, Aussie Open finalist earlier this year, Anjabur at five, Wimbledon finalist two times in a row, Coco Goff is now sixth, and then, you know, rounding out towards the end, 9 and 10 are Vondrasova, who is your Wimbledon champion, Muhova, who is the French Open finalist, and and clearly so capable. I, I mean, that was not a one-off to me, that the way that she took down Arena Sabalenka in the semifinals of this event, and that has her debuting very deservedly so in the top 10, that there is a lot of strong depth right at the top of the WTA. I feel like we're always talking about the depth in the women's game, you know, around the top 100, but the top 10 feels very strong right now. And and I'm just wondering here, as I'm looking at the the finals from the big hardcourt tournaments this year on the women's side, so the Aussie Open, Indian Wells, Miami from earlier this year, now in, in Montreal and Cincinnati, Igis Fiontech wasn't in any of those finals. Hey, it's we've surprising. got Sabalenka winning in Australia, Rabakina, Indian Wells, Kvitova with that great run in Miami. Mm -hmm. And then Jessica Pagula and now Coco Goff. But Sviatek wasn't even the finalist in any of those. And so I almost wonder, geez, are we over-evaluating and emphasizing her um, hardcore strength this year? And when we talk about favorites at the U.S. Open, should she even be in the top two or three favorites, given the fact that all those big finals we've seen so far this year haven't included her? Yeah, that I mean, that's a good point. I would say certainly... Like, at least with Canada and Cincinnati, you know, it's not a situation where we're talking about maybe some of the top 10 men who completely flopped. She was in the semis of both of those tournaments. And it did feel like, I mean, Pagula had to put forth an incredible effort in the semis to beat her in Montreal. That was 6-4 in the third. And Coco Goff having to dig in, beat her 6-4 in the third in Cincy. So I still get the sense when watching her, it does take a special effort to beat her. However, I, I think... You know, the axis has shifted a little bit in the sense of maybe the women's players aren't as overwhelmed by facing her, aren't as fearful of going into a matchup where, you know, we saw some earlier score lines from earlier in the year last year where 
we'd see six one six two six three six love i mean we talk about the bagels and the breadsticks i mean that's she still not hands happening. out she still hands out a lot of those in the earlier rounds for sure she does she does but, and um, you look she beat colin six one six love to start her event so you know she still can be dangerous and like a runaway player when she's that confident i think the the tour is starting to catch up though yeah yeah definitely and um yeah, losing that um, that fear factor perhaps a little bit. And when you see players, it was the same with Federer. It was the same with, you know, Nadal when they started having, not that, you know, they were beaten often, but just mm-hmm. sometimes you see sort of, oh, maybe I've got a chance now. And if a player, you know, even has that little bit of belief, you know, who knows what can happen versus, you know, when they're on a real heater like Sviantec last year when she had that crazy stretch of, of wins, who believes when they step out on the court they're going to beat a player like that? But now I feel like, especially with the, the other top five, top 10 players, they must clearly have that belief because it's starting to happen a little bit more often. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll we'll touch on just one issue that both Igish Miantek and Elena Rybakina brought up, taking issue with uh, some of the WTA scheduling that's that happened uh, over the past week and how it's tied to broadcast television, right? So you can't really change it. But, but you know, we discussed Rybakina having to finish a match at 3 a.m. in Montreal. It clearly completely exhausted her and, uh, you know, she then lost the Sunday semifinal and we saw Samsonova have no chance in the final having to take the court two hours after that match. And I got the sense from Rybakina again this week that there was a lot of carryover uh, from what she suffered from last week because she gets through three sets against Ostapenko and she's playing Paulini in the uh, round of 16, wins the first set 6-4, is trailing 5-2 and pulls the plug even up a set. Uh, so... I don't know how they're going to change this. If they look at certain scheduling of starting evening sessions earlier, obviously weather can wreak havoc, but it's definitely a problem. I think when players are on the court past midnight, because they need so much recovery time to get back out there. Yeah. And how many fans do you have who are staying up past midnight to watch either on TV at home or even stick around the tournament to watch? I mean, it's going to be a very select few of like rabid fans who don't have to work the next day or don't have their kids there with them. Um, so it, it's not winning for the fan side of things either. You know, do you get to a point where you just say, all right, we're going to call this one for now and finish it off tomorrow if it gets to a reasonable place where you can sort of take a pause? I think one thing that's going to, you know, limit this from happening in the future is a lot of 1,000 level tournaments moving to a 12 day or two week format. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have that here in Toronto and in Montreal starting in 2025, where it'll make these, these 1,000 level events a little less grueling that you don't have to play every day. It's going to be more like a slam where you're going to get that day of rest in between. So if you do have a match that goes late, or if you get you know rain that wreaks havoc at some point in the tournament, well, at least you don't have to play two matches in a day like we saw happen so often, it seemed, in, in Montreal towards the finish line and ultimately led to a final that was very weak in terms of the product on court because Samsonova was was just so exhausted by that point of the event. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll wrap up here just with a couple of notes. We have Winston-Salem this week. Uh, Lightfield on the men's side, Borna Chorich, the number one seed in Cleveland. You have Caroline Garcia and Barbara Krejcikova as the top two seeds. Denis Shapovalov, uh, unfortunate he will be missing the U.S. Open due to his knee injury. 
right decision, I, I think, to just rest up, get that knee better. It's been bothering him since Wimbledon. And uh, Layla Annie Fernandez is also in action uh, in Cleveland in tennis in the lands and has already notched a victory. So um, that is a good sign. Uh, Rebecca Marino is playing in Chicago as well. And I can also mention uh, we had that Vashik Pospisil giveaway with his new branded logo and T-shirt. So congrats to our winner, Shelly Gibbs, who will get a new Vashik Pospisil t-shirt next week is going to be really exciting u.s open final slam of the year one of my favorite times of the year yeah i wish we were going and i keep feeling like we say this year after year so we got to get our <laughs> know. Uh, you know what together and maybe get there next mm-hmm. year but for this year we'll be covering it from here in toronto and bringing you some great guests and updates throughout the event so check back with us um you've been listening to match point canada the official podcast of tennis canada members of the tennis channel podcast network uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time